This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional help. If you or someone you know is facing difficulties, I advise you consult a psychologist. The themes and topics about to be discussed include serious mental illness and may be very triggering for some people. If you think you could be affected, please make sure you press pause and think carefully before listening to this podcast. If you decide to proceed, please make sure you have support and a health professional you can speak with later if needed. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Psych for Life with Dr. Amanda Ferguson. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Ferguson. During January, I'll be sharing my summer series, a recasting of some of our most popular Psych for Life podcast episodes. I hope you enjoy them as much as my other listeners have. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 16 of Psych for Life with Dr. Amanda Ferguson. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Ferguson, and today we'll be discussing the will to live, suicide prevention and men's mental health. And my guest today is John Brogdon. John, you're best known as an Australian businessman and former politician. You've held many high-level roles serving as CEO and chairperson of various organisations in the financial services, as well as being chairman of Lifeline Australia, a support service for mental health crisis in Australia, and president of Lifeline International. In your political career, you were the leader of the opposition in New South Wales from 2002 to 2005 and a Liberal Party member representing the electorate of Pittwater from May 1996 until your resignation in August 2005. Since then, you've been an active voice in support of men's mental health and you're a leading advocate for suicide prevention. As a result of your significant service to the community, particularly to Lifeline, to the business and financial sectors, and to the Parliament of New South Wales, Australia, you were made a member of the Order of Australia on Australia Day in 2014. John, our families are connected through friendship. Your wife Lucy and I knew each other closely as children through our parents' friendships, and we both have family members in politics. And of course, you were in politics, and I last saw you at my grandfather's funeral. That's right, Amanda. Um, and my mother-in-law worked for your father at Minter Ellison, the law firm. Uh, so uh, there are so many different connections. Uh, the particular connection I love with you and your family is through your late grandfather, the Honourable Sir Robert Cotton, KCMGAO, who was a Liberal senator in New South Wales for, I think, about 15 years from the 60s, 70s into the early 80s and was a minister in the uh, Gorton government, the McMahon government and the Fraser government and later appointed the Consul General to New York and then Ambassador to Washington. But um, despite all that grandiose um, uh, titling and experience, he was a very down-to-earth man, uh, born in Broken Hill, ran a timber business in Bathurst, was it Bathurst? Yes. Or uh, certainly out that way, famously, famously ran against Ben Chifley as the Liberal candidate in 1949. And uh, I don't think ever, I mean, I know this phrase gets used a lot, I don't think ever lost touch with his roots. But despite being a knight, there was nothing um, fancy or, or, or snobbish about him. And in my early days in politics, uh, he had moved to, had a home at Palm Beach? Yes. Yeah, that's right, he had a home at Palm Beach. And he was a member of the Palm Beach branch of the Liberal Party. And um, he was a wonderful mentor to me. Uh, so I was always very grateful for that. And um, 
so pleased he had such a fulfilling life. I mean, I don't think they make them like that anymore, as no, they say. He was a true statesman. Yeah, yeah, and um, uh, good fun, good fun too. So, Absolutely. that yeah, there's that connection. And, of course, um, now, of course, you're a psychologist, Amanda, and Lucy has a Master's of Psychology, so I'm not sure you... You agreed that was the plan 30 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> no, we were both sent off in different directions yes. to psychology, but we both found psychology. You did, you did. Now, for my duty of care for those listening, the themes and topics we're about to discuss may be very triggering for some people. If you think you could be affected, please make sure you press pause and think carefully before listening to this podcast. If you decide to proceed, please make sure you have support and a health professional you can speak with later if needed. As a psychologist, I have a duty of care to you, John. People telling their own story of trauma can be triggered in a negative way. I just want to make sure you have a health professional you can debrief with if needed. Yes, thank you. Suicide is the act of killing yourself, most often as a result of depression or other mental illness. In the United States, suicide rates are highest for men over 69, but are increasing alarmingly in young people aged 15 to 24. Teen suicide is a growing health concern, and it's the third leading cause of death for young people aged 15 to 24. Those numbers are fascinating, but different to Australia, as you know, Amanda. Indeed, the largest single cause of death, not the second, third or fourth, the largest single cause of death for Australian males and females under 44 is suicide. Uh, so it's worse, if you like, than, say, the US. It used to be, I think about five years ago, that the uh, single largest cause of death for women under 44 was breast cancer. But it's now suicide. And that just demonstrates how much we're advancing in physical health and the awareness of physical health and how much more we have to do on mental health. And, you know, you and I are of a certain age where we'd remember, you know, 30 years ago you'd never talk about breasts in public and you wouldn't talk about breast cancer. We are so comfortable at talking about that. We all know somebody who's got it. We've got the McGrath and on and on it goes. Um, and women are talking about it. They're getting surgery. They're getting the help they need and they're turning around. And obviously we're decreasing the death rate from breast cancer. But in contrast, um, suicide's a little stubborn. Interestingly, those numbers from the states which talk about uh, the increase in youth suicides, as you know, the increase in suicides in Australia are from men over 65, and particularly men over 85. And maybe we're running a little bit into euthanasia there, but more particularly, it's just a tragedy. Every suicide's a tragedy, of course. But it's a tragedy that anyone, in this case men, um, in their 60s and 70s, who you hope are enjoying the fruits of a fulfilling life and retirement, think there's so little to hope for and so little to live for that they're taking their own life. And that's the growing number. So we just have to be aware of... Um, I sometimes worry that there's a lot of stereotyping that goes on that people out on the street will think youth suicide's out of control. And it's not growing here in Australia, certainly not growing. It's pretty flat in terms of a percentage. Where it's growing is older men. So we've sort of arrested the increase in youth suicide. We have to push it down. I'm not talking about walking away from it. But it's older men. Um, so that then flows into the discussion today, I guess, about men's health as well. Why is it older men? Look, I think it is some level of helplessness. Um, we men are hopeless, of course, Amanda, because we see ourselves through our jobs and our positions. Women are much better adjusted to this. 
So you have a lot of men who go from making really big decisions. You know, people come into their office, whether they're CEOs or senior people, every day of the week and ask for approval, ask for advice. Then you retire and the biggest decision you've got to make is what time do you have a cappuccino down the road or what time do you, you know, do whatever you might do. And all of a sudden your life is quite empty. Where they're not good is, so let me take the example of a school principal or a police superintendent, for example. You work your way up to that position in life and then you go down like a complete fall off the cliff career-wise. I've often thought, why don't we keep principals post 60 or 65 and use them as mentors one or two days a week? Yes, they lose the big office. Yes, they lose the authority, but they're valued. They're still valued for what they've experienced, whether that's a superintendent at the age of 60 or whatever it might be. And we live so much longer, right? Yes. You know, um, there was a day when most men died between 60 and 70 from a life of smoking and drinking and eating bad food, um, and they dropped out of a heart attack or a stroke at 60 60 to 70. Now we're living forever, you know, with multiple ailments. So I think um, I think the for men, older men, it's the purpose of life. And my father's 88. We were talking about dad before, Amanda. And at 88, he still volunteers all the time. Uh, so he's a carpenter all his life from 15 to 65, doesn't own the place he lives in, doesn't have much money in the bank, lives off the pension, but wants to live. And he has taken himself from being identified as a carpenter to be identified as a volunteer. And for him, volunteering's, in his mind, his job. So he slowed down this year um, in 2021 and he decided that he would um, only volunteer every second day for the Royal Easter Show in Sydney. He doesn't drive, so he gets up at 5am, gets the bus out to um, the city, gets the train out to Homebush where the, the Easter Show is held and does a day of volunteering and does all that to get home. But he loves living. But he has a purpose. So I think men whose purpose is often seen through their jobs, their roles, their titles, when they lose those, they really have to make sure that they transition across to something else. And I don't care if it's driving the bus for the oldies at a retirement village or volunteering down the surf club or, you know, so many of these men have skills that local soccer clubs need and rotary clubs need and charities need that, you know, though they're an accountant or they're a lawyer, these organisations would die for somebody with that experience to sit on their board. And these men often have an enormous amount of time. Yes. It's this lack of purpose keeps recurring in the research as being one of the things that lead to suicide, where people feel that they're socially disconnected, feeling a thwarted sense of belongingness, not being part of a valued social group, having experienced a loss, humiliation, and feeling like a burden to others. It's even known as perceived burdensomeness, as a prominent researcher described it. So what programs do we have to help men retire to something? I don't think there are programs. Um, If they are, I don't know about them. But I I think what could happen is organisations could connect locally or even to a company and say, look, if you've got people retiring, men and women, but obviously we're targeting men from this perspective, mental health perspective, if you've got people retiring, we really need a treasurer at um, the Avalon Soccer Club. Um, We need a president of the Rotary Club. Uh, um, And they're not massive loads of work. Um, uh, But, you know, you can't run a club these days without you know, insurance and all those sorts of things. And often these men have that experience. Or down at our local surf club at Bill Gola, one of the retired guys, since dead sadly, 
um, was known as the Minister for Lawn Mowing because he came and mowed the lawn at the club. Um, I think he was so bored he mowed it every week, but but that was, we loved him for that and he was loved in the club and respected for that and and um, the lawn wasn't that large, but it was his thing to do. And those sorts of things are very fulfilling. And, very important. Uh, and I th- or yeah, you see it with sports people, Amanda, you'd see this in your practice. You know, you become identified as a, as a young age as a gun rugby league player. Well, you can't be a gun rug- rugby league player at 60. There are only so many who coach. There are only so many who commentate in the media. Um, and there's a lot who, and of course, in the old days, <laughs> when I was a kid, all of my all my favourite rugby league players were either they either worked at the council, were sellermen in the club, or uh, were garbagemen. But they had a job. Mm. Now we train these guys full time. I know there's more work to to make sure they have a career when they leave. But if the average career of a rugby league player in Australia is three years, you're alive a long time after that. So how do you have a career and a life that goes beyond? Um, what you're famous for at the age of 25. So we just have to work harder to make sure there's a transition opportunity for these men. And in many cases, it doesn't have to be about money. It really needs to be about the opportunity to fulfil yourself. And maybe we're not going to get any better as men, so maybe it is the title of the treasurer of the club and all that sort of stuff. And let them come home and whinge about how hopeless everybody is that night, but you know, make a contribution. And to that contribution point, do you think there is resistance in some men to volunteer in these capacities afterward? Well, yes, there is, I think, Amanda. I think some of them think, well, I was really important. I was earning $400,000 a year. I was going to lunch at flash restaurants or I was a very important person. I don't want to go along and mow the bloody lawn. I don't want to go along and go to these meetings where they've got, you know, 10000 bucks in the bank. I'm too important for that. So the, maybe they are, but I tell you what, their contribution would make a difference. So um, I, don't th- I think men should realise that... Um, no matter what they've done. And, you know, Dad's a carpenter. Dad's Dad has completely pivoted. I don't think he's, well, except for the family, I don't think he's picked up a hammer or a saw since he retired. But, you know, he's volunteering. He's got a cupboard full, and I'm not joking, full, top to bottom, with all the volunteer T-shirts that he gets. And he loves oh, wow. that. So that's his life. That They are his assets. They are his possessions. And he lives and he sees himself through that and we all go to him every year and say, oh, Dad, it's a bit crowded in here. No, no, I'm keeping those. So that's fantastic, you know. So, I, I, And I've seen other men retire and just grumble and get old and slow down, stop moving, stop moving physically and mentally, and they can be very, very old men very early. Um, and it does flow on, as you know, as a medical professional. Um, it flows on to their physical health as well. So... Um, I've got an 84-year-old auntie who says, John, I just keep going. I just keep going. And I'll tell you what, there's a lot of truth to that for people in an older age when they don't. I mean, I have to keep going because I've got a job, right? So do you. But when you don't have that full-time job, you need to find things to do. And if they're not financially rewarding, you've got to move away from the need for a financial reward to a spiritual reward or a personal reward or the feeling you've made a difference. And the meaning of life, which often men don't get to until that later age. Correct, correct. And maybe you missed the boat. Mm. You know, um, I'm friends with some men in their 80s who are spectacularly successful businessmen, spectacularly successful um, one of them I won't mention started 45 years ago a business which is an ASX 50 business. And he got out of it a couple of years ago and um, he will tell you happily, he will not happily, he will tell you honestly is a better way of saying it, that um, his first marriage fell to pieces because he worked too hard, never at home, and um, ended up 
in his second um, marriage, marrying a woman who worked in the office. So his life was work. And I absolutely see in that a regret. I can feel the regret in what he says that he did miss those opportunities. Um, and he's not a greedy man um, in the sense of flashcars and all that sort of stuff. But you can see, I would think if he had his time over again, he'd do it differently. I guess that's a good summation of how I see that. So um, at Landcom, where I'm the CEO, we contract to lots of businesses. And one of them's called Western Earth Moving, WEM, which is a 40-year-old family company who did lots of earth moving. Um, lots and lots. And if you look at Sydney at the moment, there's lots of earth moving going on with all the infrastructure and housing. And they've joined with Landcom on uh, a campaign on mentally safe workplaces. And he, family business, he decided not that they will no longer work on Saturdays. So they were a six-day-a-week business. They've moved to a five-day-a-week business. He will say, you know, if there's a massive job to complete, they'll do it on Saturday or if there's rain and all that sort of stuff through the week, they might have to do work on Saturday or damage to the site. The mental health of his staff's gone through the roof. So you see these men, and it's a pretty male-dominated sector, who say, I've never seen my kids play sport on a Saturday. Never. Never. Now I can go and see my kids or grandkids play sport. So they're working harder Monday to Friday, but they get a Saturday off. So they get... And they would have grown up in the expectation of working six days a week. And it's physical work. So you bug it on Sunday... Now they're doing five days with two days of a weekend. So my wife, Lucy Brogdon, who's the chair of the National Mental Health Commission, will say that, in part, the solution to mentally safe workplaces, mentally healthy workplaces, is work design. And I really worry about... Oh, she's right. Of course she's right. She's my wife. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I'll tell you where... She's absolutely right. But how do we de-stress police officers' jobs? And they turn up to domestic violence, they turn up to murders, they turn up to horrific car accidents, they turn up to kids who've been molested. They see dead bodies. I mean, I can't imagine you could be a police officer without seeing a dead body at some stage. And on and on the list goes on. So their daily job is traumatic. It is stressful. You go to ambulance offices, you go to high-pressure jobs, lawyers, financiers, that sort of thing. Um, so there are some jobs, the military, veteran suicides, you know, we have to have an army. We have to send men and women into battle from time to time. Um, they will see and do incredible things. They will kill people in the cause of, of defending Australia, but they will kill people. So it's much easier to de-stress many jobs, but there are some jobs that by the very nature of our society will always be stressful and traumatic. Mm, yes. So I think you know more than me about this, Amanda, but I think it's the preparation we put in. You know, it's the same with... Football players, back to that easier example. You know, we pick these kids out at 15 in a country town. We pay them a lot of money. We transplant them in the city for a share house when they're 16 or 17 or 18 years old. They're away from mum and dad. If they're Indigenous kids, they're away from community as well. They're getting paid a lot of money. Um, uh, there's um, drugs and girls and um, uh, lots of opportunities to do stupid things. And um, they're trained five days or six or seven days a week, their diets are controlled. And then at some stage, all that stops. All of that stops. Now, they don't spit them out the end. I know those sports are trying to do more. But ultimately, they've gone from being very famous to just another ex-footy player at the age of 28 or something. And if you're going to live to 80, you're, you're alive a long time. So how do we prepare them on the way in? I think we, we're doing more and more whilst they're there but it's all, I mean, you know, you're, you're a psychologist, Amanda. You know, we psych test people. 
that go in. We psych test people for stressful jobs. Do we psych test sports people before they go? Not about their sports psychology, but their life psychology to work out. Well, this per- we, you know, this person might transition. Well, this person's not at all going to transition. Well, they they want to be nothing but a rugby league star. What the hell happens if they break their knee and can't play again at twenty two? Um, it so, almost needs the coaching and mentorship needs to be so so close to these players. Yes, and and we need to filter them on the way in. I mean, the only thing we filter them for, well, look, I don't know, but my feeling is the only thing we filter them for is can they, how quick do they run, how well do they pass, how well do they tackle, how well do they kick. Um, do we know that they're the right fit for that longer term? Um, you could say the same about medical students, right? We, you know, we stupidly say, with a few exceptions, um, have you got the highest marks? You know, have you got ninety nine point nine in your in your ATAR? Um, oh, you can be a doctor. Um, only a few universities interview people, so oh, we don't care if you've got no bedside skills. We don't care if you're the wrong person psychologically for this job. Um, we're happy to get you in because you've got the highest marks. Um, so why? You know, why aren't we doing more preparatory work? Uh, and to say to that person, actually, you're more psychologically suited to this sort of a career. We can't stop you from being a doctor. You've got 99.9, but we've talked this through. Um, so, look, I've rattled on for a bit there, Amanda, um, but there's a lot to be done in areas like fundamental job redesign and I think better assessment when people, in particular men, go into careers. The research on burnout is very much about the job design factor, that there needs to be more resources for the demands. So the heavy demands you're talking about in terms of police and first-line respondents and other people needs to be increased. Yeah. Well, also, you know, with iPads and iPhones, we're always on. And, you know, some companies, particularly in Europe that I'm aware of, have rules. There are no emails sent or answered after six at night. Full stop, no questions asked, no phone calls when there must be um, capacity for emergency. But um, I try, I often fail, but I try, if I'm send, if I'm catching up with work on a Sunday, I'll actually, the, the subject of the email will be, do not answer this today. And then they bloody answer it, you know, and you think, well, that failed dismally. So maybe the lesson for me is type those emails, um, store them and send them all at Monday morning. But uh, yes, that, that burnout factor is real. I've read a study published in the Medical Journal of Australia in 2020 found that thousands of Australians who died from suicide didn't have mental health support or they had stopped receiving mental health help at the time of their deaths. Well, as I understand it, Amanda, 50% of people, half of the people who take their own lives have never seen a medical professional. Now, as you know, you don't have to be mentally ill to take your own life. It is an act of, oh, I've got to find a better word than impulse, but it is an act of impulse. You can live 100 years, the first 50, fine, the next 50 could be fine, but one event, I don't know, a divorce, the death of a child, um, the collapse of your business, uh, whatever it might be, and at that point it can all fall to pieces. And as you know, if you have the means of suicide available to you, um, it could come on that quickly, that quickly. But for most, there is some form or some indication of mental illness or significant stress or pressure. Yes, as a psychologist, we take every mention of suicide seriously. I think part of it too, and, and I have suicidality, I have depression. Um, so that means suicide's always 
in my in the back of my mind. And if things go wrong, and they things go wrong for all of us, whether it's at work, usually at work, I have to make sure I don't um, catastrophize things really quickly. So I, 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 I'm getting better. It's taken a while. I'm getting better. Funny, I should say this, having been a politician, I'm getting better at the defence rather than the oh, yes, I've screwed up and they're all right, I'm wrong, and then I'm in catastrophe mode. So I'm getting better at saying, yeah, I made a mistake, but really it's not the end of the world and, you know, we all make mistakes. So I'm getting getting better at listening to the advice I give others, which is extraordinary. Fantastic. Yeah, the sort of stuff that, you know, when I make a mistake, if others make a mistake in my business, um, uh, I will say to them, look, that's a mistake, shouldn't have happened, don't do it again. <laughs> and, and let's make sure you better understand it for next time. So um, the ch- there's an enormous challenge with suicide. And uh, having said that, uh, and having talked about resources and all those sorts of things, I am an optimist. And I wonder if part of the pressure, the, the seemingly endless pressure on mental health uh, support comes in part from the fact that despite the fact there are, there's more money, I mean, the sort of money we're seeing now you wouldn't have seen at the beginning of your career, the conversation we're having in public was just verboten at the beginning of your career. But we're in that situation where that means more people are coming out and talking about it, so the demand is increasing. And that's it's that classic, Is that does that mean there's more mental illness or does that mean there are more people talking about their mental illness? And frankly, I, I, I go to the latter, which is people who just would have toughed it out before and probably drunk too much or, you know, done stupid things or become a hermit or whatever um, that we would now easily identify as a mental health issue, they're now putting their hand up or their family or friends are putting their hand up for them. So at the moment um, it's a double-edged sword in that we're talking about it, we're trying to normalise it, we're trying to normalise mental illness and when we normalise it, it means people put their hand up and ask for help. So at the moment um, as the demand increases, we do struggle to keep pace. Mm, yes. But as you know, the biggest single way to eliminate suicide is moving, removing the means of suicide. As well as improving mental health. Sure, sure, sure. But if you don't have the means to kill yourself, that's why we put ugly fences on... Um, the gap. The gap and on bridges. Mm. Um, look at beautiful North Bridge in Sydney with a big ugly fence on it. Well, that, that will have stopped people from taking their own life. Yes. Do you feel comfortable sharing your experience about your feelings? It's interesting. Do I feel comfortable... Yeah, I prob- probably that is um, how I do feel. I f- it's interesting, Amanda. I find it. I often find it physically exhausting. Like I, you know, you come back feeling like you've run a marathon. You know, you're tired, sweaty, that sort of stuff. But I've come to learn that sharing my experience is beneficial to a lot of people, and I try to say that without sounding like I'm full of myself. But I do say because people have said it to me. Um, after I'd left politics, I went down to the Murrumbidgee area of New South Wales and my mate, who was the local member, Adrian Pickley, took me around and we visited Leeton and Griffith and a few places and we ended up doing a big dinner um, on the second night uh, before I left the next morning at a local club and a couple of hundred people there and it was a mental health night and his beautiful mother, his wonderful mother, came up to me at the end and said, John, you'll do more good in this than you will ever have done in politics. And I've never forgotten that, other than it being incredibly complimentary. It did sort of put it in balance for me. So, look, for me, I have probably a mild to medium depression for which I'm medicated. Um, 
I take a, a mood stabiliser and an antidepressant. Uh, I see my psychiatrist fortnightly. He's been the same psychiatrist for about 15 years. Um, terrific guy. I, um, uh, I have suicidal ideation, which I really... It's only in the last year I've been able to say that because I really... You know, <laughs> I hadn't put one and one together. I wow. always, I knew I had depression because I was medicated for it, and you know it's, it's out in the open, so I understood that. But for as long as I can remember, so, and like literally back to being a kid, if things went wrong, suicide was always my option. Um, and and I've reflected on that more and more. Maybe turning fifty, you know, was was. Turning 50 was more reflective than I thought it would be. I mean, I'm not worried that it's all downhill from now, but it was more reflective. And we had a difficult time growing up as kids. You know, my mother and father, the, the only good thing about their marriage is my brother, my sister and me. Um, but they they had a, you know, they married in the 60s when, you know, everybody got married and uh, they had just a, a bad marriage. They're not bad people. They just had bad marriage. And, um, you know, lots of screaming and yelling. Thankfully, no domestic violence or anything like that. And so we would have the, all this screaming and all this fighting all the time and, you know, hiding in your bedroom as a kid and it was just terrible. And, um, uh, you know, they, they became very ugly people from time to time. And I used to hate that. As I've got older, I realise, you know, people do do difficult things people are put under pressure people do have bad marriages people are alcoholics you know all that sort of stuff you don't understand as a kid you just don't understand as you get older you have your own relationships um, and you see your own friends and family you realize that that does happen so I've become much less judgmental but as a kid I was incredibly judgmental because this was upsetting us so much and it was you know I still have very vivid memories of all that so mum and, get, mum and dad got divorced when I was 13 which was a good thing a very good thing. I remember, you might find this interesting as a psychologist, I remember mum was one of nine children, uh, six girls and three boys, and she was the youngest girl. And they were all working class people. Mum was a school secretary, dad was a carpenter. One of my uncles ran an insurance company and he was the star standout and just uh, just adored by everybody as the great success. Um, sadly, an alcoholic who died at 52. Um, uh, that was the drive, you know, the drive to do so well. Uh, so that was very sad. But um, they were all working class. So we'd holiday at Etalong and New Minor and Woi Woi. Um, and because there were so many of them, they'd often rent houses together. So Mum and Auntie Colleen or Auntie Tessie and Auntie Margaret. And we'd all get up there at the same time and we'd all wander around. So it was one of those great... It's, they're idyllic childhood memories because you'd have lunch where you were, you'd have dinner where you were. So if you're Auntie Tessie's, you'd have dinner there. If you're, you know... Auntie Margaret, she had lunch over there. And, of course, these were the great days of white bread, Devon and tomato sauce. Mm -hmm. um, absolutely, usually hot. All three were hot. Um, and, you know, down the beach and when kids could wander around at the age of seven and nobody blinked. So we were always in groups together. So these were quite idyllic times. But I remember when I was 12 or 13, Mum didn't take a holiday, so I went and stayed with Auntie Colleen or whoever. And I was going from one house to another and... Um, and I was walking through the back lanes, and the back lanes were gravel with metal fences, you know, the the um, the garage door fences and the, the, the like into the gardens and et cetera. And I thought I was being followed. And I now know what it was. It was the sound of the gravel bouncing off the metal and back to me. But I was convinced I was being followed. And I came home and said, Mum, I was being followed. 
and she took me to our GP. And the GP said, John, can you just duck out and do a urine sample? And I thought, whatever, never done that before. And that's when he spoke to mum. Very clever, very clever doctor's trick, I thought. So I came back in and he said, John, do your mum and dad fight a lot? And I just, I said, they fight all the time. Mum said, no, we don't. I said, yes, you do, mum. <laughs> you know, pride. And that afternoon, it was, we, we um, my nan was staying at one of my uncle's place uh, up at Ermington. And I said, mum said, what do you want? I said, I really want to see nan. So my grandmother was uh, probably the most important female figure in my formative years. No, certainly, certainly was. So I went to see Nan, and then on the way home, um, Mum said, oh, do you want to get some lunch? So we went to Pizza Hut on Victoria Road in Ryde, and I remember Mum vividly, literally going to the bottom of her purse to get out the bronze coins to pay pay for lunch because we weren't poor. You know, we had shoes, but but we, we didn't have a lot of money. Um, and credit cards, you know, back in the 70s were a big decision, right, a very big decision. My mother used to have the ritual cutting of the bank card. There's one for a certain age group. Um, every January when the bill came in after Christmas. <laughs> so, so, you know, we didn't have a lot of money um, and mum and dad worked hard and we went to, you know, uh, Catholic private schools, but, you know, there wasn't a lot of money. And mum said, your father and I are going to get divorced. And I give you all that story because I never feel guilty about that. Some kids would think it was my fault. I didn't. This was the right decision. So they got divorced. But sadly, mum then brought into the house a man who was... Um, uh, an alcoholic and was violent towards her. And Amanda, he was a an A-grade coward because he would hit her where she could dress over. So, and we didn't see it. So he'd hit her, you know, everywhere that you could dress over. So, you know, he'd never hit her in the face is, is I guess, what in part I'm saying. And he was an alcoholic, a very high-functioning alcoholic. I've never seen before or since a man drink from a Johnny Walker bottle whiskey in the way that you and I drink water. He literally... and function but he would get on benders and you know all that sort of stuff and that ended where he finally got so drunk and whatever on some occasion that he hit my mother in the face and it was unavoidable and we threw him out then um and i understand i think why women go back into violent relationships because he came back into the house and it was disastrous from that point on and we all left home the three of us left home but um uh, so all of that, all of that, what I did is bottle it all up. I buried it very deep and became an ambitious, I always hope, Amanda, a restlessly ambitious, not a ruthlessly ambitious person. In my case, my ambition was leadership um, and was politics. So I became the president of the Young Liberals and then a member of parliament at 27 and then leader of the opposition on my 33rd birthday. So a very sharp and fast rise but I was driven by this anger that I didn't want what happened to me to happen to anybody else and I didn't want what happened to me to stop me from succeeding. Yes as a psychologist I know that past trauma certainly can lead to mental health problems. Well what happened when I got elected to parliament um, at 27 there was an, a by-election three years later we had a general election and I was re-elected to my seat and I was appointed to the Shadow Ministry and I was widely talked about as the next leader of the Liberal Party, leader of the opposition in New South Wales and I guess alternate Premier. So I was on track. I was absolutely on track to what I wanted. I was one job away, two jobs away, opposition leader Premier from what I wanted. And I was inconsolably miserable because I'd expended all that anger, I'd expended all that energy to get there 
and I wasn't happy. And I should have been really happy, right? I should have been happy. So I was, I was incapable of stopping to smell the roses. And I have this visual picture of a shopping centre where, you, you know, I would go up one escalator, get off, and then have to get on the next one and keep going and keep going and keep going. And um, I had, I guess, I hoped I walked a fine line between arrogance and confidence because I look back now and think, wow, at the age of 32, you challenged for the leadership and you won. So you must have been confident enough to do that. And, you know, I have to stop myself as a CEO when I see 32-year-olds and 33-year-olds and think, oh, they're not ready for that. Uh-oh. <laughs> no. <laughs> Hold back, John. They're not too young. You know, we were all 32, 33 once. So, um, but I just became manic in that job, really. Lucy will tell you, um, you know, we were married at um, 23 and 24. So Lucy will tell you that she just watched me getting more and more manic and working too hard. So I was working seven days a week and six nights a week. And I often remember, you know, something had cancelled that night, you know, in the morning, oh, this has been cancelled. And most people would say, you beard a night at home. And I'd say to my uh, staff, go back and find out what I said no to and see if I can still do it. Oh, my goodness. So it was just manic in that sense. Um, and uh, But I couldn't see it. And I remember when we lost the 2003 election, which I completely expected to lose, it was a sort of always for me a two-step adventure. Lose one, lose the first one, win the second one. And my then deputy, Barry O'Farrell, great friend, later Premier of New South Wales, Barry came into me and said, John, you've got to slow down. I said, no, Barry, we've got to speed up. Um, so for me, it was, there's a certain group of people on this podcast who won't understand what I'm about to talk about. There were things called records. Remember those? And I felt like I was a record. I was on a record spinning faster and faster and spinning out, out to the edge. So there was always going to be an explosion. Lucy and I now look back thinking that something was going to go wrong at some stage. It was always going to go wrong. And who knew what? And in the end, it was me. Um, the, the timing was cruel in the sense that my opponent, Bob Carr, who'd been a very successful political leader, he resigned sort of out of the blue. We anticipated he'd go after 10 years, but he kept saying he'd stay. Then he resigned. Um, then they picked a leader who's a loving man, Maurice Yemmer, is the new premier, who whose name was is spelt I-E-M-M-A. It's an Italian surname, and I think with a Greek background, I-E-M-M-A, pronounced Yemmer. Nobody could pronounce his name. The Labor Party had to run ads on radio saying, oh, who's that bloke? What's his name? How do you pronounce it? And I thought, oh, it's fantastic. I can't pronounce his name. You know, so it was like for me the gates of heaven to open up. The one big obstacle, a powerful leader moved aside. And political history is full of this, you know. Um, opposition leader goes hard, leader stands aside, they get a short-term successor in and your opposition leader goes straight ahead. So I'd been through an election campaign as leader. I'd been blooded, people knew who I was, we're doing okay in the polls. So within a few weeks of that happening and my chances changing radically, I had attended a function, public function, where I'd said and done some stupid things and that had made it into the media and I resigned. And the next day, um, the media, or one part of the media, continued this attack on me with a whole lot of lies and mistruths and, and um, good old-fashioned front-page tabloid bash-up. And I remember standing at home, and we still live in, in the lounge room, and getting a phone call from my then former press secretary, because I'd resigned as leader of the opposition, I was still a member of parliament, at 6.15. And he said, oh, John, this newspaper's just called and it's going to run all this sort of stuff. And it was, I mean, to give you an example, it said that I wanted to take my young, attractive executive assistant with me when I went on country trips 
In fact, it was the reverse. She was a young, attractive woman, and she was a country girl, and she said, oh, John, can I come on these country trips with you? And I said, no, you can't. I mean, imagine you and I going back to the motel afterwards and people will talk. So um, uh, it was all twisted. It was, And there were many, many of these stories, and I thought, I, I've got to wade into this above my neck into the mud and the shit, and I've got to say, this didn't happen, that happened. I said, I can't. I'm not going to win this battle. The blood's in the water and, and the sharks are circling. And at that point, um, that suicidality came in. Um, and I said, I, I, I realised in my mind very quickly that the shame I'd brought upon my party, who I'd been leading, and I can remember that the day I resigned, this all happened the day after, but the day I resigned, I had a number of members of parliament from the Liberal and the National Party ring me and said, don't you bloody resign, don't you go anywhere, we'll get you through this. And Amanda, I could have got you through this. I could have got anybody else through this if I advised them. Like, no, 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 stay t- say this, don't say that. We'll get you through. We'll get you through. I could have got anyone else through this, but I couldn't get myself through this, um, despite support and all those sorts of things. And I thought, look, cut this quickly. So I resigned as leader, thinking things had calmed down. Then came this big tabloid beat-up. And I thought, I, I, I've brought so much shame upon everybody, in particular Lucy, my wife and my all my friends and supporters, and it's a big thing to be a political supporter of somebody, to expose yourself as whatever party but as a supporter. So people had, had, had marched long journeys for me. And I remember very quickly coming to the conclusion, like split second, that not, not just the only thing to do but the best thing to do was to take my own life, to take that shame away. I look back at that and I realised that was the wrong decision. But uh, And the days are gone. What I used to say 15 years ago when I told this story, Amanda, was... Um, people listening to this might think that suicide is a selfish act. Uh, I don't think people think that anymore, but they did for a long time. How could you do that? You had, and we did. I had a wife. I had a, uh, we had a one and a half year old son, and Lucy was pregnant, not known at that stage publicly. Um, but for all of them, the best thing for me was to get out of their lives and take the shame with me. And what I do say to people is never overlay rational thought on one of the most irrational of all actions, which is suicide. So I went off to try and take my own life. Um, I went to confession. Uh, the priest was uh, at the residence um, locally. I, I went to confession. I rang a friend who was a priest. This is just a small humorous sideline and said, I want to give my confession over the phone. He said, John, the Vatican hasn't caught up to mobile, <laughs> mobile phones yet. <laughs> so I went to the local parish. The priest was there. I gave my confession. I went across to the shopping centre and got the things I needed to, to take my own life with and went to my office and um, uh, by great coincidence, the media started, had been following me, started gathering around the office, and one of my staff was just next door having dinner at the restaurant next to the office and was able to open the office and the police came and stopped me and saved me, I guess. And then I went off um, and I was scheduled under the Mental Health Act. There's a box I can tick. And because um, I was a harm to myself and others, I couldn't guarantee people I wouldn't try again. And a few days later, they transferred me to a private facility under suicide watch, you know, the room with the, the glass window so they can keep you all the time and all of the stuff they do to make sure you, you can't hurt yourself. And they gave me a doctor, beautiful man, Dr Peter Clug, beautiful man, and he was just the person I needed at the time. And I remember sitting there and Peter said to me, John, things will get better. By this time, I'd also resigned from politics because I thought to myself, there's no way I can get better in the public eye. And that's another thing that's changed in 15 years, Amanda. I think if it happened to me today, 
even if I resigned, whatever, people would give me the time to be a Member of Parliament and get better. Absolutely. Um, but back then, now whether that was or wasn't the case, I think it, it wouldn't have happened. Although I might say the Parliament, the then Premier Morris Yemmer and my successor Peter Debnam moved a motion in the Parliament that was unanimously supported to give me leave for the rest of the parliamentary term, which was almost two years. Wow. So that was incredible. Yeah. So basically the Parliament, and there was a bit of... God, he's one of us, and look at what happened. Have we and have we pushed this too hard mm -hmm. and all that sort of stuff? Um, and so that was incredible. And there was no sort of oh, a bloke's going to get paid for doing nothing. There was none of that. But in my mind, I thought, God, I can't go down the park and push our son on the swing because there'll be a camera. I was so paranoid about that. So I resigned from Parliament, which was the end of everything I'd ever wanted. You know, from the age of whatever, I'd only wanted to be a member of Parliament, and I only wanted to be the Premier of New South Wales, and. I went to my 10-year school reunion. I am bragging. I went to my 10-year school reunion as a Member of Parliament. But if you bumped at somebody I'd gone to school with, they would have said, oh, yeah, we were thought he'd been in Parliament five years ago. I mean, there was no, there was no, this is what I wanted. So all of it was gone. Lost my leadership, left Parliament. And uh, Dr Peter Clark said to me in those horrible little rooms they put you in, I remember saying later to another psychiatrist, they're not very nice. And he said, John, we don't want you to stay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, good point. Um, but I said to Peter, I said, what am I going to do? I sat there and Peter said to me, John, things will get better. And a bit like that Persian quote, you know, this too will pass, right? And I, I said, Peter, what? but I work six, seven days a week. What I should have said and what I was thinking is, why are you teasing me? I can't, This you're teasing me. This will never happen. Things will never get better. It's not possible. Well, he was right. Um, it was a very difficult time. That Probably the most horrible thing that happened to me was the media hung around outside the, the clinic um, and after two days, to their credit, the staff said, oh, look, just bugger off, you know, not, they weren't on the property, they were out on the street. And the staff just got sick of it and said, bugger off, just go, just go away. And the media did. But oh, I was at, unbeknownst to me, I was in a room that faced uh, to the driveway near the street, so I, I was able to hear them. And I don't know if it was a journal, a camera, I've got no idea who it was, and I sort of don't want to know. Um, somebody yelled out as they were being ushered away, um, good luck, John, try harder next time. And I, you could have scraped me off the roof. And I thought, oh, God. And that's that part of this will never get better. This will never get Absolutely. better. How can I ever get better? This is what people are saying to me. And so, um, uh, you know, part of my experience and my advice to people is we were in there for a week. I got smuggled out in the, the boot of a car with a blanket, the boot of a station wagon with a blanket over me so the media wouldn't see me. We went away to Lucy's folks' farm uh, up in Gloucester and... Um, Soon people knew we were there, so the journos were at the end of the driveway. So we went to Fiji for a holiday. Um, big point of advice here, don't go on a holiday at that point in your life because all you do, you think you're going to have a good time. You're a complete mess. And all you do is sit there with nothing to do, worrying. So we were back from, back from Fiji within four days and straight back into the clinic. Um, when I left the clinic, um, what had happened in the... You know, three or four weeks off and on when I've been in the clinic, is we had received, and so this is 2005, emails, faxes, you remember them? Mm. Emails, faxes, letters, uh, gifts from about 10,000 people, many of whom I'd never met before in my life, many of whom shared with me the experience of my brother, sister, took their own life. Um, I've tried this. Many of them were people I'd met once. 
they were old boys from my schools. People said masses for me. It was just incredible, and it was incredibly overwhelming. Amanda, I still haven't read all those letters. I don't know whether I ever could. But the one that says it all, if I ever write a book, I think this will be the title. This guy sent a letter on fluoro paper, fluoro yellow paper. It's probably why I read it, because it stood out. And it was... Up, up in the corner, he wrote his address, which was Post Restaurant, Darwin, Northern Territory. Now, I had no idea what that meant, but luckily I'd marry a Mossman girl, so she did. <laughs> so what it meant is this guy was wandering around the Northern Territory and picking his mail up at the Darwin Post Office, Darwin GPO. So it had that address, and then it said, Dear Mr Ogden, and it was one sentence, We all make mistakes, comma, that's why pencils have rubbers on the other end, full stop. Oh. And that, would, that was it. That was what everyone was saying to me in one sentence. And uh, it's true, the, the incredible empathy and sympathy for, for me and the, I guess the feeling that, yeah, you're stuffed up but you paid far too high. Yeah, the media was too, too harsh on you and you paid a, a very high price. Um, and uh, the, the feedback was extraordinary. And this is an absolute honest honesty. For the year after that... Um, if I, wherever I walked down the street, people would come up to me and I couldn't look people in the eyes. So when I, when I was getting better, I couldn't get out of bed. Get out of bed, have a shower, couldn't get dressed. This is sort of progressive. The sawtooth recovery, as it's described, like the tooth of a, a, a saw. Um, uh, get dressed, couldn't get in the car, get in the car, couldn't get out of the car, go down the road, um, get out and walk, uh, couldn't look people in the eye. I couldn't see TV news for months, couldn't read a newspaper. I was so, so upset. Um, only saw a handful of visitors. I just couldn't see too many people. But, you know, they were loving friends and family, of course. And people would come up to me and they'd force me. They'd sort of somehow force me to look look them in the eye and they'd say, um, they'd share their story. Look, Or they'd say, look, John, um, don't worry, you know, you, you don't worry you know, we forgive you or whatever it might be. It was incredible. But there was some humour in it, you know. Um, I was walking down O'Connell Street in Sydney one day, and this is some months after I'd had my suicide attempt, and I was getting back on my feet looking for a job. And I was walking down, and this guy from across the road, I guess he was in his 60s or 70s, put his hand up in the air and said, John, John, John. And he came across the street, made a beeline for me across the street and said, John, it's fantastic to see you back on your feet. I used to come to all those Liberal Party fundraisers and support you. And then he paused. Now, I'd been in the Northside Clinic when I was unwell. And he pulled me close to him and, and he said, John, John, I was in the Northside Clinic for a month last year. And then led away and said, anyway, John, good to see you. And <laughs> off he went down the street. So that's just 15 years ago. And particularly men of that generation just didn't talk about that. And I remember um, uh, in Coles at Monavale and I was shopping, getting better, getting out a bit more, and I was shopping, um, dressed casually. And uh, this woman came up and she, she treated me like I was family. I mean, to me, she felt like one of my aunties. And she grabbed me on the forearm and she said, love, love, you didn't do those things they said you did in the newspaper. You didn't say those things. I said, look, and I thought, oh, Look, I did. I did do those things. I did say those things. And she let go of my arm and walked away. I thought, oh, God. And then she paused and spun around with her trolley and said, they must have spiked your drink. And <laughs> off she went, so unwilling to believe that I could do anything wrong. So 
Look, the public, I wouldn't have made it without the public feedback. You know, we had friends who literally broke into our house and cleaned the house and filled the fridge, literally <laughs> filled the fridge full of food. You know, it was incredible, just incredible. And it showed me, you know, that what that guy said in that letter is we are an empathetic society. We are a sympathetic society. People do make mistakes. And if nobody dies or nobody's injured, nobody's hurt, and in my case, nobody was injured in the physical sense and, and life moved on and I apologised and I paid my price um, in a career sense. But life does go on. So there was incredible that, – that, that meant so much to me. It meant as bad as it was on the way down, as bad as it was. And, and Amanda, you know, we had televisions outside, the, cameras outside the house. We had neighbours who hosed the cameraman. We, people, we had a journalist try and impersonate a member of my family to get into the clinic to interview me. Um, we had people jumping out of bushes, uh, you know, journos hiding in bushes and jumping out. It was horrible. It was horrible. And Lucy was extraordinary through all of this because there's no service, right? You know, there's no – all of a sudden she's it and everybody's ringing her. Everybody, all my friends, everybody. How's John? I mean, understandably. I had mates from the bush who just – one of them uh, had chooks so he arrives with three dozen eggs. You know, what do I do? You know, how do I help? All that sort of stuff. So it was a magnificent um, – you know, I really felt – surrounded by people and uh, the reason I tell this is because it was a very public suicide attempt but it was a very public recovery but what happens to me happens to for different reasons in different ways to hundreds of people. Yeah according to the World Health Organization site 800,000 people commit suicide every year worldwide that's one every 40 seconds and for each suicide there are more than 20 suicide attempts. And of course, the effects of suicides and attempts ripple out and impact families, friends, colleagues, communities and societies. Correct. On average, nine Australians will take their own life, um, seven men and two women. Uh, more women than men attempt suicide, more men than women complete suicide. That tends to be pretty typical around the advanced world. Yes, and the chair of the House of Representatives Select Committee on Mental Health and Suicide Prevention, Dr Fiona Martin MP, said, Over the last year, COVID-19 has had a significant effect on the mental health of many Australians through increased isolation, job loss and financial stress. In addition, there's been a reduction in access to face-to-face -face mental health services, with many changing to telephone support models. While crisis organisations and suicide prevention services experienced higher demand. However, it's also seen innovation, prioritised and communities rally to support one another. Um, yes, fascinatingly, during COVID in our state of New South Wales, suicide dropped by 6%. And it's in part, and I think this is a great lesson, it's in part because during COVID, we provided an enormous number of supportive non-mental health solutions. JobKeeper, so we said to people, you lost your job, we'll put money in your bank account. We said to businesses, we're suspending um, insolvency laws. So if you're insolvent, keep going. You won't go bankrupt in effect. We took homeless people off the street, we doubled welfare payments, as well as you know, the government, From uh, we doubled our funding from state and federal governments overnight in Lifeline and provided more services, our calls went up 25%. But two things we noticed in, in the first couple of months that, that lowered the, didn't drop the calls, but lowered the level of anxiety were JobKeeper 
and the fact that there weren't thousands of people infected every day and hundreds dying, which is what we thought at the beginning it was going to be all about, if you remember, because we saw Spain and Italy and all that sort of stuff, and here we are seeing it in India and in other places. So that calmed people and suicide reduced. Now, somebody's going to write a PhD about this. There are books to be written about this, and one critical focus is it was driven in part by non-health budget spend, non-health budget spend. It was also driven by the fact that I think, Amanda, for the first time ever, people who would never think in a thousand years of putting their hand up and ringing Lifeline or going to see a doctor or, or a professional, did they did that. And that's because the focus on mental health was so public. And, you know, journos, radio, TV, social media, prime ministers, premiers talked about mental health and talked about, you know, from the crisis level of Ring Lifeline, they gave us more money to take more calls, to go and see a doctor, all that sort of stuff. As you know, as a professional, the move to telehealth, all of a sudden you couldn't leave home, but you could do it over the phone or by video conference. Massive change, massive change, much very important change. Not a perfect way. You wouldn't want to start your um, your uh, interaction with a professional that way, but if that's the only choice, it's better than nothing. So um, that's a fascinating change, 6% reduction in New South Wales in suicide. So here's the big question. What's happening next year, this year and next year when JobKeeper and other things come off? So it'll be fascinating if it goes back to normal. So two things, all of that support from outside the health budget and a significant change in attitudes. So my ongoing hope is this was a watershed for mental health in Australia, a watershed for suicide, and people have now realised there are ways to get support and you don't have to take your own life if you're in that level of stress and um, crisis. Yes, Queensland Mental Health in Australia found that they were quite pessimistic or nihilistic about suicide and not being able to prevent suicide. But when they changed their attitude to a proactive attitude and adopting a towards zero policy, they all felt much more engaged as a mental health team. They were thinking forward about action versus backward blaming each other for when people did commit suicide. So it's all about supporting the community and working together. Sure, sure. Yes. What a story, John. (laughs) Thank you so much for your generous sharing of it. And it surely will be so helpful, if not inspiring, to so many people, as it will have been already. Thank you. So, John, I'm aware of some of the warning signs of someone who has suicidal ideation, which is the thoughts of suicide, Mm. talking about suicide, or who may have trouble with eating or sleeping, basic needs aren't being met, Um, certainly when they exhibit drastic changes in behaviour, having been depressed, for instance, becoming euphoric, um, giving away possessions, withdrawing from friends or social activities, losing interest in school, work, hobbies, uh, writing a will suddenly, making arrangements for Mm. final... All of that. All of that, Amanda, we had an incredible case where Lifeline was involved in saving a life. We were a bloke up in the Hunter Valley who worked on the land, would come in every Friday for a beer and he'd come in in his farm gear, you know, dirty and all that sort of stuff, and he'd keep a tab, he'd keep a tab, rather than paying every time he went. Well, one Friday he came in clean, well-dressed, paid his tab and shook every hand on the way out the door. And somebody had the foresight to say, there's something wrong, this is not right, 
um, and called Lifeline and this guy was going to kill himself. So we were able to intervene. So um, isn't that fascinating? You know, so all of those things you said are right, you know, people who can't sleep um, or can't get out of bed, people who can't eat or just can't stop eating alcohol, those sorts of behaviours. Um, and the work, this is challenging in the workplace. So if you turn up to work for three days in a row wearing the same clothes, um, unshaven, um, smelly uh, and distracted, our, you know, 10 years ago you'd be disciplined. We'd start disciplining you. Now, thank God, most of us would say, are you okay? okay let's have a chat. Got an EAP provider. We'd, we'd hopefully think, gee, something's going wrong here because in the workplace we won't know necessarily what's happening at home. If they're a quiet person, we won't know that mum or dad just died. We won't know their marriages collapsed. We won't know, you know, what's happening. So um, it's hard and there are some signs, but the other thing, and, and I understood this myself when I tried to take my own life, is when, you, when you're in a difficult time, and when you decide to kill yourself, you've finally got the answer. <laughs> you've got the answer to all your problems, so you act quite calmly. And how many times, Amanda, have we heard of people who come out of a clinic, they're not well, they get better, they say, I'm getting back to things, and they kill themselves. So people in that I mean, this is hard, I'm not, I'm not helping terribly with this, to be honest, but people will lie. Because they've, they know they need to lie. They know they need to say they're better so people won't worry as much and let them get out of the house. You know, there's probably only one day in the last 15 years when I've thought oh, I'm rolling over and going back to bed to in the in the cause of suicide prevention and mental mental well-being. And it's when one of our own directors on the board of Lifeline took her own life. Oh. And I, we just, I mean, we were all shattered as a board. She was a beautiful person, early 50s, loving husband, loving relationship, but... She was a psychologist, um, and two beautiful sons. The whole thing, terrible, you know, terrible memorial service in one sense. That you know why, why? But she had been really unwell. Um, she got out. She was getting better, um, and she took her own life uh, and left a note for the people who had to go and get her body, um, apologising. So that's how planned it was, and. You know, you sometimes have to put enough effort into suicide. To so you have to plan it. You have to find the means and undertake it. Yeah. Look, a well-accepted theory of suicide is that it's caused by both a desire to die and the capability of killing oneself. And so that acquired capability that means a person has overcome the normal inhibitions against harming ourselves, because we have a very strong self-preservation instinct and it takes a lot for people to overcome that and it usually occurs when people have become habituated to pain and to suffering or they lose their fear of death. John you've been quoted as saying people tend not to want to talk about suicide but should we be talking about it and how should we approach someone at work, school, home, friends? So uh, what I say to people is you wouldn't walk past a person on the street who had had a heart attack because you're not a cardiologist. You'd stop. You might know some basic first aid. At the very least, you'd ring triple O, right? Um, if you saw them fall over or they were just lying there, why do we walk past homeless people who nine times out of ten will have mental health issues every day of the week? Um, now, maybe it's because we don't care. Maybe it's because we don't know that we can help. But we can all help prevent mental illness and suicide. And one of the great revelations of, of recent times, and this is borne out through the medical science, it's science it's borne out by the professional experience, it's borne out by the personal experience. If you're worried about somebody, don't ask them to go down the 
pub for a beer. Don't say let's go to the movies. Let's, don't say let's go for dinner. Don't say let's go shopping. Um, uh, ask them, are, are you thinking of killing yourself? Now, for most of us, that's the hardest conversation you'll ever have. I mean, this could be a very close friend, could be a member of the family. But what our experience shows and what the science shows is it makes them answer the question. And there's no bullshit. It's not, yeah, okay, and oh, don't worry, you'll be right. There's none of that. Um, you ask them that question directly. And for most people, we hope the answer is no, but look, I've just had this happen to me and I'm really down or depressed. That's another journey. And some will say, yes, I am, I am. And yet again, another confronting situation. And I say to people, well, treat them like they're having a heart attack. Ring AAA, grab them, take, don't leave them, take them to a hospital, um, take them to a doctor. Because people often say, John, how do I drag my best friend to, uh, if they're depressed, to see a doctor? It's hard, right? It's hard. Lifeline exists not just for people in crisis, but people who know people in crisis. So we'll give you some tips to help you through that. But, um, or you ring up the family friend and say, I'm really, your friend, you're in that pers- person's husband, wife, and say, I'm really worried about so and so. Um, and I think we're getting more comfortable with that. In the old days, you think I can't interfere or they'll think I'm, I'm making it up or they'll think it's a, a, a negative thing I'm saying about somebody. So we are getting better. There's no doubt we're getting better. But everybody can prevent suicide. And, and this is a really important point. Everybody can play a role and you don't have to be a psychiatrist or psychologist to do that. And you have to do it by asking a very confronting question. Um, and you can also ask the other questions about are you okay? You know, the, the are you okay campaign is brilliant. What I find is you've got to ask it three times. You know, we're very good as Australians. Yeah, yeah, no, fine, mate, no problem, no problems. No, no, are you? Yeah, 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 no, 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 is everything all right? You know, you almost have to grab them by the shoulders and make them look you in the eye. And um, then you'll, you'll get a more honest answer. So don't just, you know, it's, this isn't just a tick and flick campaign. This is a real campaign. And I think workplaces are getting better with employee assistance programs where we work, we have a proactive one, not just a reactive one that also puts uh, campaigns and programs into the workplace to deal with people. They say in most workplaces, the three problems that cause people stress and mental health are ageing parents, teenage kids and not enough sleep. And they're pretty close. Um, so, you know, how do we help you with those things? So uh, as a CEO, when I get the EAP report, the employee assistance program report that says we're going to have to charge you more next year because more people are using it. 15 years ago, that's a negative. Today, that's a positive because that means I've got people in the workplace and their families who need some help and they're getting it and they're getting it. Um, and you build incredible loyalty with your people as well that you care about. Um, you care about them in the workplace and outside the workplace. And having a healthy workplace, Amanda, is not just um, the right thing to do, the sort of in our hearts, it's also good business. Because Absolutely. if you have an unproductive work, if you have somebody who's, as you know, they call it absenteeism, mm-hmm. sitting at the desk completely zoned out because of what's happening at home or what their mental health concerns are, they're a useless employee in terms of productivity. If you help that person, um, you know, you're going to get a productive worker and a good business outcome. So it's the right thing to do and the smart thing to do. My, my objective... My post-political noble cause is that we think about and we feel in our hearts about and we talk about and we treat mental health in the same way we talk about and treat physical health. When 20 or 25% of Australians at some stage in their life are going to have a mental illness, we need to normalise it. We should never normalise suicide. I like to say to people borrowing from Wham! in the 1980s, choose life. 
it's not a moral judgment, it's not a religious judgment, but we want you alive over you being dead. Please choose life. Please put your hand up. Nobody needs to suffer in silence. Those days are gone. I appreciate, and you'd better understand this than me, Amanda, that a lot of people have burned a lot of bridges along the way and family have given up on them and friends have given up on them. Um, But we still have to try and care in those situations. And, look, I think we do care. You know, government cares, the public care. Mental health resources are good, but they need to get better. But they're more available than they've ever been. So I'm an optimist about mental health in Australia. I'm an optimist that we're going to be continue to be a world leader in both the treatment of mental health and the prevention of suicide, but in the public debate as well. You know, suicide is still illegal in 30 countries around the world. It's a crime. It was a crime here 50 or 60 years ago, um, crime in most countries 50 or 60 years ago. It was a crime to attempt to commit suicide. I mean, pause for a moment for the stupidity of that concept. You try and kill yourself you survive and you go to jail or you get criminal punishment. So that's still the case in 30 countries. But for the rest of the world where it's not a crime, there are still plenty of places where it's a great social crime and it's a great um, area of disgrace and shame for you and your family. Which can turn into a vicious cycle because incarceration can often lead to suicide as well. There are very high rates in the USA of, of this finding. Well, yes, we're privileged in Australia. Um, We've got a long way to go. Sometimes it doesn't feel we're privileged, but we should be proud of the fact we are leading the world. And and you go overseas and Australia gets um, referred to time and time again, time and time again in terms of the programs we do. And, you know, I was sitting in the office of the UK Secretary for Health um, about five years ago and he said, oh, we run this... um, was a very clumsy are you okay like it's um sort of a five or six word i feel i should remember it i'm sorry and i said oh in australia we run are you okay and he said oh that's brilliant what's oh my god that's so much easier than what we do you know so um we do lead the world in some of these things and so does new zealand and i think in part it's because we have high profile people talk about it and, and we in the community say well it's all right for them to have it and talk about it and admit it and get helped for it then it's all right for me. So our grounded ochre mentality means that we can speak up and that's a good thing. Yeah, I think things have changed. You know, one of the biggest events I've ever spoken at about mental health was in Mudgee and it was full of farmers in, you know, Aram Williams boots and, and old men, older men, should I say. So I think those days have changed as well because everybody knows each other in country towns. So you know if somebody's doing it tough, you know if they've had a bad harvest, you know if they're... If they've got the, I mean, everybody knows everybody else's business, um, and uh, those communities are reaching out as well. Still, rural suicide numbers are higher than than suburban. The absolute tragedy is the significant um, increase in numbers of Indigenous Australians with suicide. Uh, lifelines looking at whether we can get funding to run an Indigenous lifeline because. The cultural issues surrounding death are so different for Indigenous Australians than they are for um, non-Indigenous Australians. So we're looking at whether that's an opportunity as well. Um, but I'm an optimist. When it's all said and done, I think we're going in the right direction. The mental health sector is full of pessimists. Oh, we don't have enough of this. We've got to do that. Yeah, we do. But we need to show people we're moving in the right direction. The risk is if they listen to the negativity, they give up. They say, oh, well, 
somebody says, you know, somebody, Professor Zanzo said there's not enough services. Well, there's not enough services for me. That means so I'm going to, I'm not going to reach out for help. I want people to keep reaching out. You know, during COVID, we thought we're going to be overwhelmed by calls in Lifeline and the general view was suicides would go through the roof. Um, it was, in fact, half right. Calls went through the roof, suicides went down. So we need to learn all about what that means because that was... And in, I mean, it was probably the most remarkable statistic, in my view, of COVID in 2020. I think COVID's really helped us to gain more perspective of our value of life, of ourselves, of basic things that we may have taken for granted in the past, that we're reassessing, reconnecting to family and um, the ability to look after our mental health, to be resilient, to be adaptable, to relearn these life skills and become better at them, which can only help us in our mental health and our ability to stay calm, focused, centred and find the good things in life. John, thank you so much for all your generous time and wonderful insights, which will help so many people. Thanks, Amanda. If you or someone you know is suffering and at risk of suicide, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Men's Line 1300 789 978, Beyond Blue 1300 224 636 or Kids Helpline 1800 551 800. To find out more about me, please visit my website dramandaferguson.com.au. You can find the link in my show notes. The opinions expressed by guests in these podcasts aren't necessarily shared by me.